Good morning. My name is Dave Selvig, and this morning we'll be reading again from the book of Hebrews. You can follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 11 from the New American Standard Bible. Hebrews 3, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to God who appointed him, as Moses also was in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over God's house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for forty years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. We are continuing in our series called Witness in Christ in Culture, and we are Asking the question, what does it mean to actually bear witness to the actual Christ rather than our own agendas or our uh, own culture, uh, but to experience something firsthand and then bear witness to it? And today we begin to kind of get into the heart of that challenge uh, in the book. Uh, Like any other industry, once you get really deep into it, you do discover that human nature is a part of it, and there's a lot of nonsense and dishonesty and blind spots, and there's a kind of purity and uh, 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 sort of a first love uh, experience that you are invited to have uh, in this book, and we get to really uh, hear that in an explicit way. And if you notice, if you uh, go back to a few of the sermons I've been uh, preaching, I've been appealing to your own sensibilities and experience more. I've been asking the question, what do you think? How else, uh, what do you make of it? And what would you do? And today it's the same thing. Uh, I asked the question today, what do you think about Jesus? Who is this guy? Why do you care about him? What does he offer to you? And what are you supposed to do in response to who he says he is? 
So there's a kind of freshness I want to invite you to uh, bring to it. Uh, verse 8 and verse 10, uh, good verses to start with, I think. Verse 8 says, do not harden your hearts. Verse 10, uh, go astray in their heart. And what we see here in this passage is that we have doubts about who Jesus is. We have doubts about religion and about Christianity, about different philosophies in life. But doubts have a backstory. You know, we think that doubts are pure. And if you have a doubt, there must be some uh, logic that, you know, uh, you're hitting up against and you should consider your doubts. But I want to challenge that notion and suggest to you that doubts have a backstory. And so it makes sense for you to doubt your doubts just as much as you doubt your beliefs. Uh, One story that really is meaningful for me is this one police officer that I had met and I was speaking with him about God and he had all these arguments for why God didn't exist He talked about the Big Bang and about how the universe came into being and how there is no creator behind the universe. There is no intelligent design. It's just sort of uh, uh, nature run amok. And just by sheer chance and the sheer number of of possibilities, we exist. And I kept feeling like he had an agenda for uh, believing this. And I think, you know, everything he said is probably there's some truth to it. But I think there's other truths that he wasn't considering. And I was curious about that. So I kept saying to him, you know, I know what you're saying. And I've read about those things too. But I think you're mad at God. I think you're upset with him. And he says, why would I be mad at somebody I don't believe exists? And I kept sort of pushing that button throughout the course of our conversation. And then finally something hit. And then he... uh, just sort of very suddenly turned around, lifted up his shirt over his head, showed me his back, which was scarred up. And he said, how can God let this happen to me? How can God do this to me? And he just started crying. And I realized there there are not just intellectual doubts that he had, but there was an experience, a backstory to the doubts that he brought with him about God. And I want to suggest to you today, as verse 8 and verse 10 says, that it's possible for your heart to get hard. It's possible for your heart to go astray. Your heart is sort of like a child, and you can nurture it. You can uh, nourish it, feed it good things, and it, it's very alive, and it's soft, and it's receptive, and it knows how to think. It knows how to respond in a healthy, honest way to the world. Or it can become embittered. It it can become filled with resentment. It can feel dejected. It It can feel lost. And out of that heart... You, you draw from that reservoir to think and to move and make decisions and have your being. You live your life out of your heart. Your heart isn't just a blank slate. It's not objective. You may have a hard heart. You may have agendas in your heart. And so by the time you are considering Jesus, maybe for the first time in your life, you're already jaded. You're already unable to objectively hear who he really is and what he wants to do in you and in your life. And so uh, my first encouragement in my introduction today is to doubt your doubts, that not all doubts are sincere. And 
open your mind up, open your heart up to uh, today's talk because you may experience Jesus differently. Two points today. Uh, The first is to um, suggest who Jesus is. And second, think about what he has to offer. Okay? We'll start with who Jesus is. Verse 2 to 6. I took out a couple of phrases just so that it fit on the screen better. Uh, Let me read it for us. He was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. By just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. Uh, We spent uh, one sermon at least talking about Jesus being compared to angels, and you are like, angels exist? And uh, I guess they do. Jesus is compared to that. And today you can ask, Moses was real? I guess he was. He's being compared to Jesus. And Jesus was also real. Why the comparison? Who cares? Do you ever compare anything to Moses in your life? When's the last time you compare something to Moses? Like never, right? Uh, But this is a pretty significant point. If you are part of the intended audience, original audience of this letter... Uh, Moses and Jesus, and you may have never heard this phrase before, it's a pretty cool thing, are both what's called covenant mediator prophets. Okay, you have God, and then you have covenant mediator prophets. Like nobody is closer to God than covenant mediator prophets. And there are two covenant mediator prophets. How many of you know what the Bible is? You know the Bible? Yes. The Bible consists of two books, two testaments, two sections. We have the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? The Old Testament is what, uh, you know, generally people refer to as like the bad cop part of the Godhead. And then the New Testament is like all lovey-dovey and hugs and kisses and maple syrup and things like that. And that's Jesus, right? Law, grace. Punishment, forgiveness. That's kind of how we generally understand it. But these are kind of true. They, uh, anybody know another word for testament? It's the word covenant. Right? So we have the old covenant and we have the new covenant. And the covenant means that uh, it's a, it describes a kind of relationship that God has with people. And so the old covenant or the old testament the first half of the bible consists of the covenant that moses mediated with god on behalf of people okay so moses is a covenant mediator prophet he's the one who came down from mount sinai with the law the 10 commandments and then we entered into a covenant with god to keep the 10 commandments 
So that's the Old Testament. Moses is the mediator of the first covenant between man and God. And God wanting to reveal himself a little, little bit at a time. Progressive revelation throughout human history says, okay, the, the people called human beings, they are ready for a relationship with me, an official relationship. And the first relationship that we're going to have is going to be based on law. I'm going to show them through the law who I am, who I'm not, what my expectations are. And I'm going to show them that they cannot, by obedience, fulfill their part of the relationship with me. They're going to fail in the face of these ten laws. Because these ten laws are descriptions of the perfection and what the Bible calls holiness of God. And then the role that Moses had to play was to give the law to the people so that the people can begin to be made ready for the fulfilling of the law, which came through the second covenant mediator prophet, and that's Jesus. He mediated a new covenant Not one that displaced the old one, but one that fulfilled. Not one that gave no place to the first, but put the first in its proper place. The Bible teaches that the law was given so that we can be made ready for Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the law. So we have the new covenant, which is based on the spirit of the law, which is God's love and perfection. And by Jesus' own death, his blood, we're able to experience Love, the love of God, the forgiveness of God through Jesus' own uh, shedding of his blood. And so we have the first covenant and the new covenant. And that's why these two characters are compared. If you lived in this world, if you lived in this time, if you were a Jew receiving the gospel message for the first time, this is very, very relevant. And I want to show you how this is relevant for us. Moses gave the law, as I said, and Jesus fulfilled the law. Moses was not displaced by Jesus, but he was put in his proper place, contextualized within larger history. Moses was temporary, and he was always, by design, a signpost. Jesus is permanent, and he is and has always been the destination all along. Moses worked for Jesus. That's what the passage says. Jesus was, is, and will always be the owner of the house, the authority. Uh, Do you know that there's always a difference between a worker and the owner? Uh, One of the fun facts about Susie and our life is that uh, when we lived in New York, we had all these strangers living with us all the time. And one of the guys that lived with us was one of the franchise owners of Five Guys Burgers and Fries. Anybody like Five Guys? Yeah. Oh, I walked into the very first Five Guys in New York City, and uh, I loved it immediately. I just loved the decor. I thought it was fun. I walked up to the cashier, and I said, is the owner here? I'd like to meet him. And uh, the owner heard me asking that. He came out from the back, said, hey, my name is Peter. He said, my name is Michael Hoover. I said, I really like your place. He began to tell me his story. We pulled aside and had a, like a, maybe a 10-minute conversation. And at the end of that 10-minute conversation, I asked him to move in with me and Susie. He thought I was crazy. 
He ignored me. And then a month later, he called me and asked me if the room was still available. And he came to live with us. And we ate five guys till we wanted to never eat it again. <laughs> but what a difference interacting with the owner of five guys as opposed to one of the workers in five guys. What a huge difference. When you are the owner, you have a certain air about you because it's your place. You have authority. You have the final say-so. It's all, everything that's happening around you in the store, in your life, if you're the owner, it's an attempt. All the workers and everybody, they're attempting to uh, honor your will. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying, that Jesus is the owner of this house. That's you. That he created you. That he owns you. He made you. He loves you. He cares about you. And nobody else, not Moses. You don't pray to Moses. Jesus is the owner, creator, the final authority in your life. We see words like worthy and glory. Because he is the owner. Jesus alone is worthy. He alone has glory. He's the son. It's his house. He's the substantive person. He's the significant one with whom we have to deal. And he, throughout all history, has been faithful to reveal this fact about himself. That there was a time when there was chaos and there wasn't law. And that's the early part of human history in God's revelation, self-revelation to us. And then there was a dispensation of law when what we understood about God was that he is a God of order, that he is a God of justice, and he is a God who is to be obeyed. What he says matters. That was the Old Testament and then in the New Testament, what we learn is the reason that God gave us the law was to show us that we really can't keep it all by ourselves. That that is no way to live. And what we need is not ability to keep the law, but a way to be forgiven so that we can connect to God, who is the only one who can actually make us new so we can keep the law. But we can't get to God without Jesus. And so Jesus is here revealing himself through a new covenant. Now, all that may be kind of boring to you, but let me put it this way. Let me put a, a, a little pressure on you. Even if you don't believe anything I've said, that Jesus is God's revelation to us and he wants to be the authority in our life because he is, this is the question that's relevant to us. If Jesus is not the final authority of this world and in your life, then who is? Who will you look to? Who else actually has authority in this world? Who will you trust? When you have a problem in life, you want to know, is there a manager here? Is somebody own this place? Does anybody care? Don't you feel that as a consumer even when you are relating to a business? If you get stuck in a marriage issue, 
and you can't get past each other? Don't you want to know? Is there somebody else with more authority, more insight, more wisdom, more say-so that I can appeal to? Don't you want somebody above that you can go to? The systems you trust, the people you trust, the relationships you look to, when those things in your life reach a fail point, when you can't look to yourself anymore, what will you look to? I think even if we don't acknowledge or believe that Christ is the final authority, he is the owner of this house, we still have a need for it. And we are grasping for it sometimes in the dark. We're looking for it. Emotionally, you feel it. Now, I'm appealing to you to bear witness to this. In your life, in your own head, do you need authority? This is a fun little story, too, about Susie and I. Uh, I grew up pretty dark and kind of edgy and angry. And I came to the University of Michigan uh, with, uh, with an attitude problem and a staring problem. And... Uh, there was Susie across the room, and I had set my eyes on her, but she was pretty scared off by me. But here's one thing she noticed about me that caused her to remain open to uh, uh, sort of a bad boy like me, uh, was I had surrounded my life with all these guys. That's what she noticed about me, that there were guys that I was always praying with, that I was, I was studying the Bible with. I was riding my bike with, I was hanging out with. I couldn't act as my own authority because I answered to these guys in my life. We talked. I opened up myself to them. They were allowed to scrutinize me and ask me questions. And no matter what kind of attitude I had or New York darkness was you know, leaking out of me, she knew I was not my own safety net. Ask her, she will confirm this. She loved the fact that if she related to me, if she would open herself up to me, I would answer to a higher authority. And take it one generation further. I look at my four girls and I tell you, I do not want to release them into some dude's love. (laughs) That's not enough. I don't care what he says with his words. It doesn't matter to me. I want to know that Whatever guy, you know, my, whatever guys my girls end, end, ends up, end up with, I want to know that these guys answer to a higher authority. So that if they are not loving enough, they are still asking the question, how can I be loving enough? And they know they have to be loving enough. There is some standard that they're always feeling up against them. Some, some plumb line, some cornerstone, some square. You get this? If you're in a relationship, you want the person you're in a relationship with to have accountability, to be answerable. Do you want that for the government? Do you want that for our church? Would you like me to run the show and have absolutely no limits to what I can do? That would be dangerous. We need checks and balances. But checks and balances are just a poor temporary substitute those are just laws that's just Moses we want somebody not just with a sense for what's right but somebody who is righteous and can act and have power to do what is good and just and true and beautiful 
We need a final redeemer. Do you know this? Do you feel this? I'm appealing to you to bear witness to this. Apart from the owner of the house, all we have are laws. You holding yourself to your own standards. This is what the passage is teaching us. There was Moses. That's good. Law is good. If you ever experience lawlessness, law is good. But there is one who is worthy, more worthy, and has more glory because it's his house. And until you come to terms with this, until you're able to be from your heart and in your mind honest about our societal collective need and individual need, relational need for authority in our life, some absolute standards, the presence of one who is love and just, you're going to be restless is what the passage is teaching us. That until Jesus is your authority, you are going to live life with tension within yourself and with others. You will not experience rest. That's what the passage ends with. You will not enter into my rest. It will be like the Israelites who are wandering in the wilderness. Now again, you yourself, in your own heart and mind, observing your own life, being honest about it, doubting your doubts, you have to say, do I want authority in my life? Do I need it? Am I really restless without it? For me, for me, what I have observed about my life is that it's hard for me to trust people. I do have trust issues but I've really been working on it. I had a really significant sort of season of uh, growth, I think, in this area of trust in this last year. And it's been really powerful for me to see the kind of low-grade but ever-present restlessness in my being and in my soul, in the way I related to people, in my expectations of people, until I came to, I'm, I haven't arrived. I'm not trying to speak the arrival language, but there's a new level of understanding that really nobody can, nobody is worthy of this final authority other than Jesus. And as I grow in my ability to believe and know that Jesus really is the authority, this Tension remains inside of me. Because think about it. You look to your spouse and you say to them, you better love me. You better be good to me. You better not lie to me. You better not deceive me. You better not get lazy. You better be on your game. I mean, how can you hold somebody to that? You can't. They have to somehow be self-motivated to love you well. They have to be. You can't make them love you. They have to want to love you. But why would they want to love you when they are self-centered just like you are? 
Because here you are self-centered and out of that self-centeredness, you're thinking, you better love me. And they're going, you better love me. It's my rights that I fight for. And when you bring that kind of expectation and really need to a human being, it creates tension. If you want to have a bad day, have expectations. Or a system, or a job, or a manager, or a friend. You will bring some sort of un achievable expectation because you can't help it. You bring that to bear on people and people cannot bear that weight. Systems, the law cannot bear that weight. And so until you release them, but you can't release them because somebody has to be in charge. So you're restless. You live in tension and you're wandering in the wilderness like the Israelites. So that's, that's chapter I mean, point two, what he offers, what he offers. Verse 9 through 11, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, what I want to do here is I want to stop beating up on the Israelites because they're not any worse than us. But here is what I want you to see. I'm not going to do all the exegetical work that I've already done. I won't do it for you again. But here's the deal. No matter how much God loved on them, until God sent his son to die for them, they're not convinced that he actually loves them. It doesn't matter if God provided for them for 40 years and then 40 more years. It doesn't matter how much you love somebody until you die for them. You will not trust them. And this is why the Israelites wandered in the wilderness, restless, unable to rest in somebody, an authority that actually loved them. Because no matter what you do for people, until you die, they're not convinced. And that's why the Israelites kept forgetting. Because the thing that is unforgettable is their death, their sacrifice. And so they're restless. They're not able to enter into rest. Well, what is this rest? There are two instances of God resting, uh, dispensationally speaking, in the scriptures. The first is after creation, God rested. That's what the scripture teaches us. And then the second rest is after the whole world ends, the whole show ends, and there God is on the throne. He's resting. And then there's this whole middle part in which we dwell And what the writer of Hebrews is saying, right here, creation that's done, eschatology, end times that's yet to come, those are the two bookends of rest. But in the middle here, you can have rest. You can have rest. You don't have to be restless. You can experience rest because law is put in its proper place. People are put in their proper place. The self is put in its proper place. The systems of this world are put in its proper place. Luck is put in its proper place. Your own judgmentalism and comparison, it's put in its proper place. Because Jesus is put in his proper place. So this is the challenge. Do you testify 
Do you bear witness to the fact that you are restless because you have this innate, deep need for authority in your life? And if you, it's hard to see for yourself, look to the person next to you. Do you want that person to have authority in their life? And the answer is yes, you do, because you don't want them to misbehave. Right? But that's how they feel about you. So you know this. So you have to give, give me this. You want, need authority in your life. Yes. And the only way, what I'm telling you, this Bible teaches, is when you put Jesus in his proper place. Because nobody else is worthy. Nobody is. Nothing else is. Um, I want to end with a uh, story that's real and it's um, uh, involving our church and it's just, it's been a really good lesson for me and I would want to share this with you. Uh, the church used to own what's called a parsonage. It's a home that the church owns and it's kind of a traditional thing that lots of churches used to have where they own the home and then the pastor lives in it and it's part of their compensation. And this church wisely decided that they no longer wanted to be in the parsonage business. It created tension with the pastor that was living there. Imagine like every time there's a foster league, you have to go to a committee. You know, it just, that's one hypothetical example. But it just, it's, it's not a necessarily an ideal scenario all the time. And so we decided we're going to get rid of the parsonage. And we went into this conversation and process of getting uh, the parsonage uh, selling the parsonage in the market, but before the market, offering it to me because we already lived there. Now, as we were going through that, I started feeling all this angst. And I just started misunderstanding things because that's what the heart does when it's scared. But in my own head, I swore I was just being rational and logical. But it was really stemming, coming from a heart that was scared. And it was sort of in survival and scarcity mode. And then at some point in the uh, conversation, the leadership team, they pulled me aside, took me out for a drink, and said, Peter, we love you, and you're going to have to trust us, or this isn't going to work. And I just looked at them, and I realized I don't trust them. Why would I trust them? They're just people. How do I know? How do I know? And that began a whole sort of uh, revelation and then addressing of this trust issue in a, in a new way. And I just said, you know, I have to trust them because I trust Jesus. And it was so helpful for me because it was as close to, because it's your home, it's your money, it's like, it's as close to hitting home as it gets. And I was challenged to trust Jesus by trusting them. And I did. I made a decision and I grew. And it was such a rest I felt. And today I'm happy to report to you for the first morning in months, I made coffee at my coffee station because our kitchen is done. <laughs> and I feel like oh, I'm entering into God's rest making coffee there. Now you have your own way of thinking about it, but... Uh, the challenge is this. Is Jesus the lover and author and creator of your, you and your life? Is he? 
And if he is not, who is? And that's the challenge. And I want to leave that question open to you as we pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, you have uh, given us these hearts that are made in your image, in the image of your heart. And out of this heart flows life or death, faith and doubt, and uh, agendas and fears and uh, love and sacrifice. So many good and bad things are possible from our heart. And uh, first of all, we just acknowledge that, that... um, Not all our thoughts are honest. Not all our logic and rationale is uh, coming from a sincere place. So we doubt our doubts this morning and we allow ourselves to be challenged by this question of who Jesus is and what he offers. And some in this room are uh, not at a place where they trust Jesus and they're still looking to themselves or to other people, or to the systems of this world, or maybe luck. I don't know. But I think they're not worthy as you are. And so I pray for you to speak uh, to that group. Another group just kind of needs uh, a new challenge to take trust to the next level. God, what would it mean for us to uh, trust you? trust you, to believe that you really do care and you know what you're doing in our life and to entrust ourselves into your good hands and to be able to release the law and release people and the things that we have tension with in our life. And I pray for all of us, you give us a taste of your rest today and this week. We look to you now as the one we worship in Jesus' name.